0: Good morning. Really good to see you. Uh, If you don't know who I am, my name's Lewis. I am on the kind of wider group of people that help lead the church here. And uh, yeah, I'm on staff at the church as well. It's really good to see you this morning, especially if it's your first time. Uh, Just a really warm welcome. I uh, I wonder if you know uh, this experience. You think it's Friday night, I want to get a takeaway. So you sit, uh, you get the laptop out, you go on Deliveroo and you spend the next 45 minutes scrolling between the different restaurants and looking at reviews and wondering is this the best pizza or is this the best pizza or is this And then you finally after 45 minutes you press order and then your food arrives You stick the TV on you put Netflix on and then the same thing happens again. You think ah, I don't know I don't know You keep scrolling 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 by the time you find a movie your food is either cold or you've eaten it all while you were doing it and your nights completely ruined I've been there hundreds of times It's not just Netflix. Our lives are just overloaded with choice these days, right? Like people, sociologists would call it choice overload, choice anxiety. If you go to the shops to buy shampoo, uh, you could spend 20 minutes reading the back of the labels and thinking which, which smell is good, which one has the best antioxidant effect. I don't know, I don't buy the shampoo in our house. I, I think that's what, that's what they do. But you, we have all these choices. I don't know what shampoo does, honestly, I don't know. <laughs> There are hundreds of choices in our world, is what I'm trying to say. Shampoo is a bad, a bad example. <laughs> and it can be overwhelming, right? It doesn't stop there. We, we're overloaded with political opinions. overloaded with uh, articles that say, here's the new tip you need to be healthy and flourish in life. It's hard sometimes to know what the right thing is. We live in a world of shopping. Right, like this goes beyond shampoo and Netflix and takeaways. And for those of us who are Christians, and even those who are not, actually we're being discipled to become shoppers in every area of life. And some of us actually, we come to church shopping for religion, right? You maybe go to church and then afterwards over lunch, you say, how do, how do you think the worship was today? I had it, that was good. Like stew, you know, a couple of the chords he played were a bit out, out of key, you know? And, <laughs> That kind of that song he chose, I didn't really like it. And then the guy came up and was preaching. He said that weird thing about shampoo, and like I, I, don't know. I don't. I just feel like this isn't the church for me. It's not the church for me. And so you go to another one and you think I'll try. I'll try this church. They've got better worship. They've got better preaching. It's it's easy, honestly. This is this is real. <laughs> it's easy to shop around when you've been discipled to be a, a shopper, a consumer in all of life. We come to church and we think. I'm going to sit and I'm going to receive and I'm going to evaluate. How was the preaching? How was the worship? How was the the cake? How was the coffee? Church just becomes one more option in our consumeristic world. We are, as Ian said, in week four of our series Partnership of the Heart. And the question we want to ask ourselves today is really this How do we move past spiritual shopping? How do we move past spiritual shopping into being a community that serves and loves one another? How do we be a kind of church that gives rather than takes, takes, takes all the time? We want to be a people that don't shop but serve. So I thought that Paul's... uh, Paul's little passage in Romans 12 where he talks about the church as a body is a really good place for us to turn. So if you have a Bible, would you turn to Romans? Uh, we'll look at the end of chapter 11 and then into chapter 12. So from verse 33 of chapter 11, Paul says this, O oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who is known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And I wanted to read that before we go into chapter 12, because Paul does this thing here that he does throughout all of his letters. Right? He first says, let's look at God together. And then he says something like what he says in verse 2, in view of God's mercy, do this. The Bible's never in the business of saying, you should do this, without first saying, look at how God has modelled this. And so in view of God's mercy, why don't we look first at the God who serves us, not jump straight to our service in the church, but first the God who serves us. And this is so important. I think this is kind of helpful way of thinking about it. Attachment theorists talk about something called internal working models, and the internal working model is basically this sheet that gets laid down in your brain in your earliest years, where you learn what what is it like to relate to people. What is this world like? So, for example, if you grew up with a parent that was unpredictable and chaotic you might find yourself as an adult walking on eggshells around people i don't know how they're going to react i don't i don't know this world is hard for me to figure out so i'm going to kind of cautiously tiptoe my way through it or if you had a parent that was consistently loving barring other factors you will probably be someone that tends to trust people when they say that they care about you Right, like The way that we have come to view love and relationships through our parents is often the way that we live the rest of our life. I think something similar is going on with God in the way that we live. So Paul wants to ask, not in his language, what is our internal working model when it comes to God? How do we view him? What pattern does our view of God lay down in our minds as we come to church? In other words, the kind of substance of our vertical relationship with God deeply impacts our horizontal relationships with each other, right? So we want to begin by looking at the God who serves, just as Paul looks to the unsearchable judgments and riches of God. We're just going to spend our first 10 minutes just peering in to the character of God, the God who serves, the God who has always been a God who serves, and in Jesus who we fully see is a God who serves. So that's the first thing to say is that God is the God of eternal service. He's the God of eternal self-giving. If you've been around church for any period of time, you'll be used to the phrase, God is love. God is love. God just doesn't have love. He is love. But I wonder if you've ever really thought about that phrase. How can that possibly be true? God existed for eternity on his own. So before God created anything, he spent eternity alone. How can God be love? If love isn't just a nice feeling we have, but something that we do. If love is a tangible way of showing our affection for one another, how can God be love? How can the one God be love? Well, the answer to that question is the doctrine of the Trinity. Christians believe that God though he is one, exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the words of the church father, Gregory of Nyssa, when I say God, I mean Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is who we worship. It's who we come to this morning is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. An ancient creed in the church says we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. God has existed forever as one God who within himself has mutual self-giving love and joy so we don't serve a God that sat alone forever and got lonely we serve a God that in his aloneness existed in love and fellowship and community what would be a really simple way of saying all that God is love God is love Eternally the Father loved the Son and the Spirit, and the Son loved the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit loved the Father and the Son for all of eternity and for all of eternity. God is not without someone to love. Here's what that means. Contrary to religions like Islam that have one God who exists in one person, our God is the God who has always served He's the God who is always pouring himself out for another. So all of his acts, everything he does outside of himself is not an expression of neediness. I was listening to Stephen Fry's book Mythos, where he like kind of retells these Greek myths. And it's incredible how similar some of the Greek creation myths are to the biblical story man is formed from the dirt and woman comes out of him, and you think this is quite similar. The big distinction is the reason that the Greek gods decided to create was because they were needy. They were needy, the Babylonian creation story that the Old Testament was written in the culture of. One god got angry and raped another god, and her child was the earth. That's where creation came from in the mind of ancient religion. In the Christian imagination, the world comes not from God's neediness, but from the overflow of his love. God doesn't create because he's needy. He creates because he bubbles over in eternal joy. Paul puts it like this in Acts 17. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. God is the God who eternally gives, who eternally Serves. But the second thing we need to say is that in salvation, we see God even more closely as a God who becomes a servant of His creation. God doesn't just create in love, He saves in love. In the first century, around Jesus' time, Jerusalem is oppressed and occupied by Rome, and the Jewish people are under the cosh. And desperate for deliverance. And so they start to expect that this coming Messiah is going to come with a sword in his hand. You have groups like the zealots, who were Jewish enemies of Rome. They, they would try and sabotage Roman operation. And so when you see Jesus' disciples ask him things like, Lord, when you come into your glory, which of us can sit at your right hand? They're talking about military glory. They're thinking, you are going to slay the Roman Empire and then we will sit at your right hand and rule the earth with you. That's what they mean. And we might understand that if we imagine being an individual in Ukraine today, occupied by Russia, under the Kosh, desperate for deliverance, and here comes the Messiah. What do you expect him to do? You expect him to come with a gun. You expect him to come and, and with force defeat enemy that wasn't an unrealistic expectation but jesus in one of his more difficult teachings his disciples ask him hey who's who's going to sit at your right hand in your glory and he says this, this is matthew 20 25 and onwards he says the rulers of the gentiles lord it over them but it must not be like that among you whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus comes revealing that the way of the kingdom of God is not military power, but service and humility. God himself goes to the cross. He redeems his enemies by dying in their place. Jesus didn't come to trumpets and fanfare and parades. He came to wash feet, to live humbly, and to die. He did that for us. He did that for the church's bride. Thanks, man. And Jesus didn't come and think, okay, I'm going to shop around for a bride. I'm going to say, well, maybe the maybe the Jewish people failed me, so maybe I'll find a different bride. Maybe I'll maybe I'll try another area. Maybe you know, I'm going to do that. And we failed him as a church, and so maybe he'll go and find another church. Jesus doesn't shop around for a bride. He gets on his knees with a towel and washes his bride's feet in her failure, in her sin. Jesus shows us a God who serves. He doesn't shop. In our student Bible study last week, we were looking at um, Exodus and how Moses asked God to see his glory. It's Exodus 33, Moses says to God, please, encourage me, let me see your glory before we go into the Promised Land. In the end, God says, you can see my back because you will die if you see my face. If you see my glory, you will die. And so he puts him in the cleft of a rock and the back of God passes by. Nobody can see the face of God or they will die. Nobody can see the glory of God or they will die. That's the story in the Old Testament. In John chapter 1, we read this. Verse 14, John says, We have seen his glory. And in verse 18, Nobody has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is God and who is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. Do you know what that means? It means that the glory of God that would have killed Moses if he'd seen it is found in a carpenter from Nazareth. It's found in the humble carpenter king who is crucified for us. If Moses had been allowed that day to see God's glory, he would have seen Jesus washing his disciples' feet, dying in their place, riding on a donkey. That is the glory of God not power, not might, Jesus. He'd have seen a God that dies for his enemies. He would have just seen Jesus, who the only time he lets us peer into his heart, says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. It's the glory of God, the God who serves, the God who makes his enemies into his friends. we become God's friends by letting him serve us. When Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, Peter says, Lord, no, you, don't you dare wash my feet. Jesus says to him, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no share in me. So Peter says, Lord, my head and my hands also. How do we get in? How do we become God's friend? By letting God serve us in Jesus. God is the God who serves. You know, if we come to church This morning, without a firm grasp on our identity in Jesus, the servant king, we will come shopping. We will come shopping. We won't come serving. We'll come shopping for approval and meaning and identity from people around us. We'll come shopping for popularity. We'll come shopping for a, a nice religious experience. When we reverse the order that Paul shows us, When we start with coming here and thinking how can i how can i take and get from people before we realize that we've received everything from god this place will become a spiritual shopping center and there is no point in being here if that's what this is all right we've set our internal working models under christ who displays the nature of the eternal trinity of love to us god is a god who serves but what does it look like then Paul says, in view of God's mercy, what does it look like for us to be a community of service after the pattern of Jesus? Well, if you would turn with me again to Romans chapter 12, we'll read from verse 3 and see how Paul uh, applies all of this. From verse 3, Paul says, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. First step that Paul has for us towards becoming a serving church is for each of us to think rightly of ourselves, Do not think, too highly of yourself he says actually one commentator that i read said his language in this verse super buoyant could almost be translated do not super think about yourself you know for paul the most dangerous barrier for us becoming a community of love and service is that we start to think too highly of ourselves (coughs) our grace communities are serving at food banks this term We're doing partnership with the Hearts. We do have mission nights in Grace communities, and the cost of living crisis. We think, hey, why don't we just rally together and serve the food banks in our city? But imagine if we, in our Grace community, were at Glasgow Northwest Food Bank and we're sorting beans and kind of sorting them by their dates and that kind of thing. And I think I'm getting quite peckish, and I find a tin of tuna and I crack it open and I sit in the corner and eat the tin of tuna. I would have just misunderstood why I'm there. I am there to serve. I'm not there to just receive. I'm not there to consume, I'm there to serve. Right, like if I just take away from the food bank a bag of food, I've misunderstood why we were even there in the first place. And Paul wants us to rightly understand our place in the church. Our place in the church is this. We are sinners become saints who have found grace together in Christ the servant king. We are not the be-all and end-all of church. Paul wants us to come humbly, knowing that we're brought into this community by grace through faith. Not to come demanding the things we want because we think, well, this church would die without me. I'm so important. They have to give me this and this and this. And we come knowing, man, I'm, I'm only here because of the grace of God. I don't know if any of you have seen the TV show Ted Lasso. Johnny loves it, he loves it. There's a character, Jamie Tart, who's a bit of a kind of stereotypical drama queen footballer, and there's a really over-the-top scene where he scores a goal, and the managers are like, what is he, what is he doing, what is he shouting? And he's on the touchline, and he's like this, me, me, me. And Ted Lasso pulls him aside in the changing room, and I won't, I won't do his Texan accent. And he says, do you know, I think that you might be so sure that you're one in a million that you forget that out there you're just one of a living. That's Ted Lasso's way of saying, don't think too highly of yourself. To quote one of the guys in the advanced movement that we are part of, God is not impressed with your gifts. He gave them to you. I wonder what would change if we each came with a posture of humility and not arrogance. If we recognize that it is Jesus Christ in us, the hope of glory that qualifies us to be here. Not our abilities or our gifts or our personalities. In John 7, Jesus attends a Jewish festival and before long, he has the attention of everyone. And he stands up on a table and he starts to preach. Here's what he says. He says, the one who believes in me As the scripture has said, we'll have streams of living water flow from deep within him. And then John comments, he said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit. For the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. You know, we get a peek into Jesus' view of the Holy Spirit here. For Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit is about God flowing through and out of you to bless the world. Not about you having a nice experience. We'll get there. We'll get to more of that. But more importantly now, what is the qualification in Jesus' mind to be somebody who dispenses the goodness of the Spirit to the world? What's the qualification? Let's read again. The one who believes in me will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. The only qualification in Jesus' mind for you to be filled with the Spirit and bless the church is belief. Not your training, not your gifts, not your like working really hard. It's belief. If you're here and you know and love Jesus, you have something to offer the church. In the language of John Wimber who started the Vineyard Movement, we want to be all play at Glasgow Grace. But please don't make this mistake. It's not all play because we look around the room and think, oh yeah, we have, we have really good We have really good prophets in here. We have really good guitarists in here. We have some great preachers. I think we could start a church. No, it's all play because Jesus has qualified us to be his church by his blood. It's not merit. It's not, oh, this is a good church. We could do all play. No, every church is all play because everyone who has believed in Jesus is qualified to have streams of living water flow from within them. So what what does Paul say? Don't think too highly of yourself. You're here because Jesus has brought you here, not because you have earned it. Second, Paul wants us to think rightly about each other. Have again a look with me at verse 4 of chapter 12. He says, As we have many parts and one body, and all the parts don't have the same function, in the same way we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. According to the grace given us, we have different gifts. Well last Christmas when we had our uh, carol service at Mary Hill Borough Halls I left my bag in the car. And I came out to the car and I was driving home to see my parents in Helensboro and I thought where's my bag? I had my iPad in it. I couldn't find it anywhere. Turns out it was stolen out of the car. That was my fault. Abby's always saying when we get out of the car you need to lock the door and I don't ever lock the door. Somebody opened the door and took my iPad. <laughs> it's my fault. It's my fault. <laughs> it was really annoying. It was really annoying. I had a bunch of notes on there. Again, another mistake. I didn't have iCloud. Now I do. You learn. You live and you learn. But I could replace it, right? I replaced it. I have another iPad now. An it was annoying, but I could replace it. Do you know there are some things in life that we can't replace? My old football coach, when I was a kid, he was a butcher. He worked in Morrisons. And he chopped his finger off one day. And he came to football the next week with four fingers. <laughs> And he, he never could replace that finger. That was him. He had four fingers. <laughs> bodies are like that. He couldn't just one day look at his hand and think, ah, this isn't great. I'm going to upgrade it to the newest model. Like when, when this iPad breaks, maybe I'll buy a new one. But when our bodies break, they're broken. When we lose a part of our body, it's gone. And I think for Paul, the body is such a powerful metaphor. Because bodies can't be broken up or chopped up or rearranged. You can't have life in a body if you're going to chop it to pieces. It's just reality, right? Like You can't take the hand away from the body and then think, oh, I'll get it back one day. Bodies are not made to be broken up. For the Bible, that means that you can't come to take communion today and catch eyes with someone across the table and think, I wish I could upgrade them to a better version. Like, I wish I could have them, but with a less annoying laugh. I wish I could have them, but they didn't nag me so much. We, we can't do that. We, we can't look and think, I wanna upgrade you. It's not how bodies work. That means the people in this room, when I'm speaking about serving, the people in this room are the people we're talking about people in this room are the people you're called to love and serve not a kind of idealized version of a lovely church so it means that but it also means you cannot make the decision just to check out and leave body parts don't get to decide to just leave the body the body needs all of its parts it would be ridiculous for me to think well I really enjoy preaching. Preaching's is kind of my gift, so why don't I just get rid of my limbs and focus all my energy on my mouth? Like, why don't I just put all I have into that? Who cares about my arms and legs? That isn't how bodies work. was not how bodies work. We need one another. We need each other in our different gifts. The body needs arms and legs and stomachs and shoulders and noses. One of the absolute tragedies in the church in Scotland is that we have just divided along all sorts of lines and it's not an accident, we're okay with it, we like it. So you have the church over here, I'm not pointing at a real church, the church over here that is the tongue speaking church. Their worship's amazing. And then we have the church over here that's the Bible preaching church and I just, you know, I go there for the evening services just to get, you know, to just get fed on the word but their worship's not great. We've divided. We've said, you know, you guys have this gift to go over there. You guys have this gift to go over there. And we just don't see that that is biblical at all. Even our services are sometimes divided with age and stage. This is a tragedy because we will never display the glory of the God who is three in one unless we are a body that is one and many at Glasgow Grace we want to embrace all the gifts of God's Spirit from prophecy to preaching from caring to encouragement this is one of the ways that we most effectively live out the reality that we are one body made of many different parts there's something glorious about being led in worship and then someone comes and brings a prophetic word and then somebody preaches and somebody's up the back praying for someone and encouraging them. All of that is done because somebody has the gift of administration and made it all happen. There is beauty and diversity. That's what we're all about. So let me encourage you. We need you. You might feel that your gift is useless, but it is not. We need you. But let me also challenge you. The only reason you have the gift you have is because God has given it to you for the common good of His church. You do not have your gifts for your fame or your career or your success. You have them so that you might serve God's people. You bless God's people. So that together we can enjoy His presence and worship Him. So that we can see a snapshot in our gatherings of the glory of the somehow diverse One God. Nothing is like the Trinity, but when we gather together in our diversity of gifts, it's a little bit like the Trinity. So before we finish, how do we practically do that? Well, Paul finishes his little section with kind of asking them to think rightly about their gifts. So have a look with me at the second half of verse 6 into verse 8. He says, If prophecy is your gift, use it according to the proportion of your faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving, with generosity. Leading, with diligence. Showing mercy, with cheerfulness. Try to bounce off Paul's encouragement. Bounce off it and say, why don't we just get a bit more practical in our own context? What does it look like for us to serve one another in the diversity of gifts we have? Well, the first thing... We want to do is we want to elevate others, to elevate others. Stephen Covey wrote this famous book called The Ten Habits of Highly Effective People, and one of the habits he says is have an abundance mindset. By that he means there are some resources that are scarce. There's only so much to go around, so I need to get mine. I need I need to nudge someone else out the way and get my portion. But there are some resources that are abundant, and with an abundant resource, we don't need to be stingy. We can be generous. We can be patient. We can take our fill and enjoy as others take their fill, as well. And I would just wonder if we are getting used to living in a scarcity mindset again. Some of that is natural. The cost of living crisis means money is increasingly scarce. So we just we just start to think, this is mine. This is mine, and here's your bet, but this is mine. And we're we're getting used to that mindset again. But I feel we need to know that the grace of God is not scarce. The grace of God is not scarce. And John 1 John says that from the fullness of Jesus we have received grace upon grace. There's no limit to the grace of God. And when it comes to serving, this means that we realize that God's spirit is not limited. Others operating in a gift doesn't mean that you are being left out. Somebody else being gifted by God and serving Him in the Spirit does not mean that you can't contribute to. We want to be a community that celebrates each other, lifts one another up. So one, we don't make our gift the gift, as though oh, there's only enough space at the table for a couple of people, so I'm going to get in. We also don't put ourselves front and center willing to see others get some glory. We're willing to see others be celebrated and enjoyed. Because God's grace is abundant. There's no limit. There is no limit to God's grace. So enjoy when you see others operating in their gifts. Enjoy seeing us all come together. Don't think, oh man, like I'm seeing Stu up there and that just means that I I feel like I'm not getting the recognition I deserve. Celebrate that. It's a sign of God's grace on us. Second thing, be yourself to God's glory. If you have ever watched a game of kids football, you know it is chaos. So there's the ball, wherever the ball goes, there's 20 kids just chasing it. There's no sense of tactics or positions. It's just everyone charges at the ball. Everyone wants to be Ronaldo. Everyone wants to be the one to score. But in a mature church community, we will not be like that. We won't all look to be Ronaldo. We won't all look to play the starring role or pursue the gift that we think is the best gift. No, instead, we will use our unique gift, our unique contribution for the good of the whole team. For to keep talking about football, there are certain positions that just don't get applauded. But without them, the team would fail. We want to be humble enough to be ourselves, to use the gifts God has actually given us for the good of the whole church. Practically, that means you need to find out what your gifts are. You know, I have such distinct memories in my life of somebody pulling me aside and saying, hey, I think you might have a gift of teaching. You should maybe pursue that. Keep, just keep digging into it. And it was a shock to me. Like, I really, I really don't see that, but okay, Let, let's do it. If you can't identify what it is, why not spend some time with the lists that Paul gives in Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, and just pray. Say, God, I want to contribute. I don't want to be a spectator. I want to be in. I want to be serving. Give me a gift, Lord. Jesus says that Father in heaven loves to give good gifts to those who ask. Come and ask. We have a prayer team at the back. They would love to pray with you during this time of worship. If you think, I don't even know what my unique contribution is, go and get prayer and ask. Say, man, pray for me. I want the Holy Spirit to follow me and give me a gift. He loves to do that. Also means you take seriously the gift you do have. Paul's encouragement is really just this. If you have a gift, then use it. If you have the gift of encouragement, you are depriving us all of the joy that comes from being encouraged. If you just sit at the back and think, I wish that I had a gift of worship, Ludum. And if you've been given a gift, use it. Bless us, serve us, find your lane and run in it as well as you can. Soren Kierkegaard, the Scandinavian philosopher, once said, now with God's help, I will become myself. I love that. I think that is what we are after. We don't want to just be a homogenous group in here. No, we want to be diverse. We want to say, man, you have the gift of encouragement, you administration, you prophecy. And we take that seriously and we use it for one another's good. Be who you are to the glory of God. Lastly, and just before we finish, work hard for the good of the body. Work Hard. We do believe in the organic kind of coming together of spiritual gifts. We we love to see God do things that we don't plan, but it's also good and right to intentionally serve each other. So the outworking of that for us is that we think it's probably best practice, if you're able, to serve on one or two teams. We would say no more than two. We We don't want anyone to be burdened. If you don't serve on a team... You'll have seen a card on your seat today that says join a team and you're able to fill that out. In particular, our welcome team and our kids and tots teams would love more people just to say, I'm going to just lay aside my desire just to come and shop and I'm going to serve once a month. Do you know, we see something of the humility of Jesus. Sorry, as these guys over here sit quietly and serve us. And we only notice them when a mistake happens. It's humble. It's like Jesus. We see the welcome of Jesus when you get a tea and coffee that, where did this come from? I don't know. Who bought these pastries? I don't know. There's, there's the welcome of Jesus when we come in and are welcomed by a tea or a coffee and someone on the door saying hi. We reflect Jesus when we serve. I just really want to encourage you, if you don't serve on a team or you feel you could serve on another one, fill in that card. There are baskets at the back on the tables. It's just a tangible way that we can serve one another. You may be aware that your posture towards church is one of shopping much more than serving. God's invitation to you this morning is this. Imitate him in his eternal life in the Trinity. And imitate Jesus as he comes and serves us and serves his church. Stop coming looking to be entertained. Come looking to give and serve. In you know, a world of consumerism and transactional relationships, when we truly learn to be a church that serves one another, that is when we will really stand as a witness to the God who serves. When we lay aside our preferences and lay ourselves down for each other, that is when we most reflect the glory of God.